wellness, and fitness. We are two certified athletic trainers, personal trainers, and nutrition coaches who met and graduated together from the University of Arkansas. And we want to do this podcast to spread our joy about treating our bodies well through nutrition, exercise, and knowledge. Today on Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast, we welcome Romina Kostich. She's a personal trainer based out of New York, specializing in strength and performance training, specifically for runners. She started coaching in 2014 and now trains clients around the globe to run faster, breathe easier, and get stronger while decreasing their likelihood of an injury. She is a fantastic friend of mine, but also just a wealth of knowledge, specifically on running and positioning of pelvis, rib cage, and just helping people get better through injuries and stronger when they need that, being a runner. Her Instagram is skilled strong, and she posts some amazing reels, and we talk about that in this episode. We talk about a ton of different topics from running to strength training and her background and her uh, path to what she is doing today. So sit back and enjoy our episode. Okay, today we have Romina Kostich on the podcast, and we are so pumped to have you on. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we just are going to go right into it because we kind of started to get into it before we started recording, and then we decided to just go. So Megan, go, because I think you already have questions. Yeah, well, no, first, Rubina, tell us who you are, what do you do, who are you, and then I have questions. (laughs) Okay, so I'm Romina. I am a Queens native, born and raised in New York City, and I became a trainer seven years ago, just about. Um, in 2014, and it was a career switch for me. So I had originally gone to the Fashion Institute of Technology. I was a merchandising major and didn't love it. Like I realized within a couple of years of being in it that like, oh, you really have to work with materials for your entire career. And it's just, I wasn't in love with it enough to do that. And then I switched to communications. So I finished with an advertising and marketing communications degree. And this was back before like social media had blown up to the degree it had. Mm -hmm. So we were doing kind of like marketing plans and business plans and advertising campaigns like as projects, but the social media wasn't like, it was a very small component of it. So it's just, it's crazy how like far have things have come. But when I was in that, what I liked about it was the people to people aspect, right? You're always communicating, whether it's like with your team in the office setting or responding to different people who are higher and lower than you were and just putting everything as a project. That was really cool for me, but the deal breaker was just sitting at a desk all day. Yeah. Like I just, I couldn't be there. My body was screaming. I, I loved drinking so much water so I can keep going and getting up and going to the bathroom and walking around the office. And I looked forward to the gym at 5.30 p.m. when I could leave the office and go get a workout in. That was the highlight of my day. So it just made sense. I think it was 2013. I was in a paid internship. It didn't work out. And then it's back to the drawing board where you're applying to more internships or potentially job openings. But then I felt like I was just bullshitting it. Like, I'm so eager to apply for this position and the cover letter. And I'm like, I'm not eager. Like, this isn't... (laughs) this isn't what I want to do. So I realized, okay, what I really like is working out. But what I love most about not just working out for myself is what I've learned about exercise, because I I had a trainer really briefly when I was 18, my parents sessions for my birthday. And it was like eight sessions, but I'd never touched heavy weights before. And this trainer introduced me to 
40 pound dumbbells. <laughs> and before I was just a, a cardio bunny, I was running on the treadmill till I died, wasn't eating properly at all. I was but back then I had body image issues. So I was just, okay, you have to eat really little and exercise really hard if you want to change your body. <laughs> I'm getting more and, questions. Yeah. So that's what I did for quite a while. It worked in a very unhealthy way. Like I definitely developed an eating disorder and I got a lot smaller. Like right now I'm 135. I weighed 109 quite a while ago. So people, people were like, whoa, your body changed. But my friends were kind of like, you okay? <laughs> it's kind of like, it was a weird instance where like you feel like you'd accomplished so much, but then people don't see that like people start to get concerned. So, but that's a whole other tangent. That's a tangent. That well then <laughs> as, someone, as someone with an eating disorder, you were probably like, secretly glad you know that they were noticing the changes or maybe maybe not I don't know that's pretty typical like oh you're accomplishing exactly what you wanted to be doing you know yeah I mean me personally I was proud of like this crazy change that I perceived I went through and like my I got a whole new wardrobe because my clothes didn't fit right they were too big and it's mental so in my head I was like oh I look so great this is this is how I want to look just bird bones (laughs) but people when they see people on the outside like your family and just outsiders they're they're going to be like that's that's kind of serious like what's up but at my mind at the time it's just that was very good like god forbid someone tells me otherwise this is what Mm -hmm. i wanted and i achieved it and i was really happy but it came with a cost and it wasn't too long ago after that around the same time i was 20 years old my first injury was I stepped off a bus and I landed on a crooked sidewalk and I sprained my right ankle, mm-hmm. like one of those inversion planes where it rolls. Yeah. And it was quick. It just happened in an instant. I was like, ow. And then I walked two blocks home, took a nap. When I woke up, I had a grapefruit-sized ankle <laughs> and it was blue. And I was like, are you serious? So I told my parents the same day I was still living at home. They took me to the ER just to like see what's up. They gave me crutches. They bandaged it. And they're like, you'll be fine in a week or two. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So for that week or two, I just didn't use my legs in the gym. Like I did, I tried the rowing machine. I did upper body stuff. But, and then like another week later, I was back on the treadmill running. Wow. So (laughs) versus now the things that you would like you guys and I know, it's like, that's not the progression (laughs) for getting back into running. You don't just bandage an ankle and be like, you're fine now. That technically... Technically, like I didn't die, right? I got back into exercising, but all the injuries that followed later, like the amount of stuff that was connected to that ankle and granted, we don't have like perfect correlations and research studies that are like, it's because of Romina's right ankle that all these things happened up the chain, but it's no surprise too, right? It's no coincidence Mm -hmm. that if something doesn't work at the very bottom of your body that contacts the floor and is compromised and doesn't want to act like an ankle, other things aren't going to want to act like the joints that they are. Yeah. Well said. Was that the first time you rolled the right ankle? Now I'm like thinking. <laughs> Wait, no, no, no. It's my left. It was my left. Oh, ankle. your left. Ooh. Right. It's my left. Yeah. That's to me more interesting. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. I mean, they could be either one, right? It's, but for me, it was my left ankle. To my knowledge, I don't think I had any other injuries, lower body at that point. Like I developed shoulder bursitis from mm. doing those boxing classes. like the group boxing classes I just got so into it so I'm like all right three days a week you're doing the the shadow boxing and then you're you take turns you go to the guy with the gloves and the mitts and you go to the boxing bag and then all of a sudden like I had tendonitis in both shoulders that's why these group fitness classes and I know New York LA 
Dallas, certain places are filled with that, like group fitness classes. And I think they can be quite detrimental sometimes just because of what you're talking about. Like you just enjoyed it. And so you kept going. So some people will like keep going and uh, anyway, that's a tangent. Yeah. Detrimental, but also good in some ways. Sure. It gives people the community that they need. But yeah, that is something. Yeah. I met some cool people, like the same people that always show up to the boxing class. So you start to like, you make small talk and then you talk about like, oh, how are your kids? And you just, you start to make friends with these people. Right. And, but I also envied the people that had no issues. Like all, why was I the one that my shoulders bothered me? Everyone else was fine. (laughs) Yeah. So your background, so you said that your personal trainer introduced you to weights, but you were still kind of mostly running or... Were you like Running, strength yeah. training at this point? Okay. I wasn't so, strength training until the personal trainer. I think it was 18 when okay. I had a few sessions with him. So all I was doing was running on the treadmill if it was winter, running outdoors if it was the summer. And that was before Strava. That was before like we, we had the big iPods. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> you had to like yeah. find a place to stick it into your sports bra. Yeah. Um, so I funny. think I, I think when I was 13 and I started running, I may have used the Walkman. I don't remember. Oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> That'll cause some gait abnormalities for sure. Um, I don't remember. Like, how would I even hold the thing? Like, I must have had it in a backpack or like one of those fanny packs or something. But yeah, when I was 18, that's all I was doing was running and then sit up some crunches until like burnt, my abs burned. And it was hard to feel my abs. Like you would Weird. think, oh, you do a hundred. Now <laughs> I know why. <laughs> yeah. So right? then- like, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, so then how did you get, so when you did start doing strength training, what did you notice? Like, did it, obviously I would assume that it would improve your running as far as like your, just like maybe your mechanics, but like, what has your strength training melding with running journey been like, I guess is what I'm asking. Oh man. This was before I was a trainer, right? I was 18. I became a trainer when I was 23. So in those five years before I decided to become a professional I didn't really get away from running, but I just started to love strength training so much more because it was a thing that it was like toys I never played with in my life. And they were so much more fun. And I still did sprints, but had never had any formal instruction on how to sprint properly. It was just as part of my, my trainer knew that I wanted to lose weight and be lean. So he gave me sprint intervals in the treadmill as part of like my regimen for the time I was working with him, maybe once or twice a week. But looking back, I would not operate that way. It may have, for whatever reason, maybe he thought, oh, well, I only have eight sessions with her. Let me get her like as much as possible in this short period of time to get her to her goals. But sprinting on the treadmill, I I wouldn't give it to any of my clients. It's a lot on the body. There's a lot of mechanical stuff you need to be understanding. And it's also, you don't want to be thinking about your posture and your body when you're sprinting. You want to just be able to do it well. So you want to prepare to be able to sprint before you actually sprint as part of your training. And that could include a combination of strength training. That could be maybe you're running already. You don't necessarily need to be running as part of your routine to start sprinting, but to introduce it, very small distances focusing on form and position and the way that your, your body's moving is more ideal versus like versus what my trainer at the time did with me it's just like here I do do whatever he said 10 seconds off 50 10 seconds sprint 50 seconds walk and then do it 10 times something like that I don't know it's a long time ago so I kept the treadmill stuff and I kept strength training but I also developed a stress fracture in that same left tibia and the shin and the ankle that I rolled 
coincidence, maybe, I don't know. I was also wearing dunks. Like I wasn't wearing proper running shoes. So oh my God. <laughs> oh my goodness. So like, look, again, this is choice. before I became a professional. This, this is before the PRI shoe list is <laughs> a long time before that. Well, you fit into living in Queens with those. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So with your clients now, I know like when I was younger, I used to run a ton in undergrad. Like I would run like five days a week. I also went to a huge school with a massive campus. So like I like lost the freshman 15 and my family had similar reactions to like, whoa, what is wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. But anyway, I know that I, I would say mine was more of like, I enjoy the feeling, like I love the endorphins, but also like, I think there was a large part of me that just wanted to control things, you know, control my body. So would you say that your clients, are they typically people that just want to feel, you know, they want to feel running? Do they want to like get those endorphins or do you, do you get a lot of people that are like, I want to get leaner or smaller? Like, what would you say? Or is it either of those? Nowadays, the running clients that I get come to me with specific running goals. So it's usually either one of the two just for the time being, but I'm sure that's going to grow. It's usually been, I can't run because of this and I want to run, or it's, I want to hit this PR. Mm-hmm. It's usually one or the other. And I enjoy working with both because I've been kind of on both and both ends. I've definitely been the person that couldn't run and wanted to get back to it. So those people I had, for whatever reason, it could have been an injury. It could have been just pelvic floor issues. It's, it's varied, but for in terms of writing their programming. And I like, I'm the person that works from the strength side. So I can prescribe mileage, but that's not my experience as a fitness professional. I'm very good at strength training and understanding what a runner will need for their sport specifically. And I think there's a lot of great running coaches that already exist, but I feel that in terms of there being a market for, or even a niche that isn't addressed is the runners, but from the strength and performance side, like distance runners, especially. Yeah, Um, actually, can we delve into that? Because I know, I mean, the stuff that I can picture just like general, like even just the strength, the coaches, the running coaches that I've worked with at a high school level, like they're like showing these exercises, like, are these good? You know, it's like lateral band walks or like things like that. Strengthen the hips, like not in any way runner, whatever, use their hips, like, hello. But could you please delve into some of the things that you do? Like how, so say a client comes to you and they have like chronic, I don't know, knee pain, for example, like they just get some like tendinopathy or whatever in their patellar tendon. Like how do you approach that client? So first we do a consultation, right? First, I just talk with the person a few minutes. Can I help you? And is it a right fit for us to work together is where we start. If the person has seen, I had, an, I had a person that I worked with who she had seen a PT, she had strained her adductor on a run like seven months before we even connected and had done her stretches, had done her donkey kicks and glute bridges and these traditional PT things and they didn't work. And seven months later, she was still in pain, just walking, like let alone running. Her left foot had also started bothering her. So, and from the stuff that she was telling me in this initial consultation, I was like, I can help you because it was pretty obvious that the, the clinician she had worked with for whatever reason didn't address the root cause of her issues. And you, all of us have learned to look at the rib cage and the pelvis, but no one else really has, or at least doesn't really understand why it's important. 
um, even though it's kind of like the center. Like you have to look the at the center if you want to address the extremities. So it was obvious to me that that hadn't happened for her. So that's something I was like, okay, yeah, we can totally work together. Let's do it. And we started training virtually once a week. And then I go through the assessment process. Like once they decide like, yeah, I want to work with you. This is a good idea. I'm totally on board. Then we start with the assessment, which is about an hour. But for me, sometimes it runs into 90 minutes because there's so many things I want to get to. And the assessment process gives me all the data and the measurements I need to understand, right? We look at the pelvis, we look at the rib cage, we look at some breathing. Can you bring your knee to your chest? And my assessment process keeps evolving just because I keep taking on mentorships. I keep paying people smarter than me to learn from them and understand like, okay, what do you, what do you think when you see this? And kind of like not necessarily having an algorithm, but having a thought process that you can kind of understand the rules, know when it's okay to break them or at least bend them a little bit and then keep going with what you think is best for the client in front of you. Does that kind of answer the question? Yeah, yeah. That makes complete sense. So like if anyone, well, well, we'll obviously post all of your social media in the show notes, but you have some of the best reels on the gram. Just oh, thank you. Like you and, you and Jill Zimmerman have like really, really good reels with great information. So um, I know Alina had a question though. So go ahead, Alina. No, she, you really do have really good reels. There was one you Thank did you. recently that I like actually laughed out loud. But I was going to say, Megan and I actually worked track at University of Arkansas. And so we worked primarily with injuries, but we got to like kind of interact with strength training for runners. I think it would be really interesting for you to talk about more of what normal I'd say normal, not optimal, but normal strength training is for runners versus how you kind of train and why, how you, you train specifically for gait and how that's different. So you're asking like what strength training should look like? Well, what it, first just runner? tell our audience, like what is normal colleges doing for a runner and maybe why that's not ideal. I can't speak to that. In the college setting, I never played college sports. Like, Fax yeah. Institute had, like, maybe a basketball team, but I had, you know, <laughs> it's an all-girls school. So I played high school sports, and that's my experience in the collegiate setting, like, firsthand. So I can't speak to what the, like, colleges and universities are doing with their track athletes. Or just in general, like, what you know about, I, well, I don't know if conventional strength training methods are versus more gate-specific, if that makes sense. Like, so what I can tell you from what I know, and like, I've been in gyms since I was 18. Like, yeah. that's my second home now, right? Especially as a professional. So I, I see what people would be doing. You can tell when someone like is a committed runner because they're focused on their treadmill stuff. And then they walk to the weight section or the mat section, they do their stretches and stuff. And then I also, since I became a trainer, I worked with runners as a personal trainer from the strength side. And I think they understand they need to do squats, lunges, deadlifts. I think they understand upper body is important, but I had a client tell me that her other trainer was having her do shoulder raises, shoulder raises, like the dumbbell flies and stuff, which is like, that's an exercise, but it's not like you really need it. You don't need to have your shoulders doing that on your runs. I think that there's value in just the traditional push, pull, squat, hinge, deadlift, like single leg exercises, some kind of locomotion and rotation. Like who, Mike Boyle is probably the person that I learned that. And that's just like a staple with any kind of athlete, yeah. um, regardless of your sport. But I think that's about the basics. But I think with runners, there's no universal source of information that's being fed to them, at least in a net, from an educational standpoint. 
there's like runner's world and then there's these fitness magazines and the godforsaken women's health, which I used to subscribe to. And I'm not saying that they're a bad magazine, but you just tend to see like the same kind of message communicated to women, especially, right? Three sets of 12, 15, squeeze your butt, brace your core, engage your abs, like you're about to get punched in the stomach. And those things do not apply to running as a movement, to running as a sport. It's, it's the complete opposite. Three sets of 12, 15, yeah, that's a rep range. But there's so much more. <laughs> there's so much yeah. more to training than just, you know, doing three sets of 12, 15. Sometimes it's good to do three sets of four. Yeah. So what's something that you think most runners could benefit from, like, that, I don't know, maybe you, you do personally that's been a game changer for you or that you've done with most of your clients? Breathing first and foremost, because that's a really good answer. Yeah. That's, it's the one thing where like, and I've had, so 2017 is when I got introduced to postural restoration. I was an Olympic weightlifter at the time. So completely different, like end of the spectrum in terms of the sport, but I developed a hip impingement and I couldn't squat without like crazy pain. I forgot which hip it was, but took about four months of doing breath work, but also like the hip bridges, the different kind of hip tucks, the hip shifts, like very basic and fundamental things that I had no idea my body was supposed to be doing. And me as a professional in the fitness industry, advising other people who are not professionals, and I couldn't do this stuff. I didn't even know you were supposed to be able to do this stuff. Yeah. And because the doctors don't tell you, the PTs don't tell you, no one tells you, right? Until you find the color purple, right? And then PRI is your first course, (laughs) (laughs) right? You have no idea. And it's not to say that you need to take courses from any particular institute. It just so happens that they're probably the only ones who are really talking about this stuff. But I also know a handful of trainers who have never taken a course from them, but have understood these concepts and learned them from other people who took for your eye. So it's, it's getting a little more kind of like spread out among the fitness industry and professionals. Yeah. Um, but imagine, right? Like a good portion of our profession doesn't even know that, that you're supposed to be doing this stuff. So imagine the clients. And I wish I could tell you that there is one person that breathing didn't work for, and it's just not true. Like, yeah. it's, I think be, breathing can be tough to teach. And I think that's the really hard part in terms of once you realize the power of like, it's not just air flowing. It's like, you're getting the ribs to rotate, right? People know that, oh, I need to work on my ankle mobility. So I'm going to do these ankle rocks. So I need to work on my hip mobility. So I'm going to get my hips to move in, in the cars or whatever. They do some crazy movement. But like people don't realize that ribs are what, like over 30 joints in one. I don't even know the real number, but those things are supposed to move. And people don't realize that breathing and the rib cage are kind of two in one of the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're just like, oh, breathing is just how I exist. (laughs) Right. I just breathe and my lungs expand and they have no idea that inside their body is a rib cage. People, I don't think people realize that they have a rib cage. Right. And for runners, it's where rotation comes from, right? I think my first mentor told me that all movement is initiated at the hips, which is true, but the rib cage anchors to the hips in like a well-moving athlete, right? So they're able to reciprocate and there's pockets. I don't think runners understand there are pockets of the thorax of the rib cage. So like you have a left side back and a right side back. You have a left side chest, you have a right side chest. 
you have a left side side, you have a right side side. And then you also have two different hips. You have a left one and a right one and that it blows their mind. It's, it, you have to dose it and introduce it very slowly and you don't want to overwhelm the person. So you kind of pick and choose one or two movements and sometimes just hold to get them to understand like, this is what you want to feel. This is what you want to be able to access because it, it ties back to not just breathing and mobility and rotation in the rib cage, but it also ties back to, this is just walking. <laughs> this is how you get to the grocery store. This is how you walk your dog in the mornings and how you walk is how you run. Mm -hmm. I think, right, no one understands that. Trainers especially don't understand that at least to the ma mass level that we'd like them to yet. And that's, that was me, right? Four or five years ago, I had no idea that was even a thing. So yeah, that's, feel, that's where I would start with them. I feel like there's such a small percentage of trainers, fitness professionals, and PTs that are like actually utilizing this information. Maybe it's bigger. Maybe it's growing. It's definitely growing. But the correlation like you'll see of people feeling better is insane. But I did want you to talk a little bit about training people in the city in New York and Queens like this is something me being in Texas now, seeing the difference of people's personalities, one, and how it shows up in their bodies, two, I could kind of touch on both because I was in New York and then here, I just noticed such a big difference. And I feel like people in New York need breathing so much more. Yeah. I mean, everybody needs it, right? But breathing, technical work. And I want you to talk about your clients a little bit and what you kind of see with them. Man, the emotional stuff is a whole nother day. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole, I mean, I'll talk about it. Uh -huh. I'll talk about it firsthand because I didn't realize how emotionally blocked I personally was. So 2017, hip impingement, Olympic lifting. Olympic lifting is a very emotional sport, right? Yeah. You've done it, right? Yeah. You if you don't make your lifts, so like four out of five days, you'll be fine. But then one day you're just going to, you're going to go to the corner. You're going to lock yourself in the uh -huh. bathroom stall and you're just going to start falling. <laughs> you're just crying because you're like, I suck. I can't get this muscle set. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. It's, and I'd seen people crying before. And then once I started training, I was just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like I totally understood. You mistakenly asso associate your success with the barbell with your own like personal well-being. Like, are you worthy in this world? And if you can't lift that barbell, then you start to think, I'm not worthy. <laughs> but anyway, at the time I was learning PRI, I was doing all this stuff and I was getting my body to move better. If I wanted to fix my hip impingement, I had to get my pelvis and my femur to reciprocate on both sides and they weren't doing that. So I was learning how to get into my left side, right side and vice versa. And I grew up in a household where there was some conflict. So some daddy issues, emotional abuse that has now been resolved many years later. But when you grow up like that as a child, you learn to not like consciously, you just learn to tune out. You learn to shut down inside. You know, there's a fight or flight. There's also the freeze. So I would freeze instead of, instead of fighting back or whatever. So whenever like my parents would get into an argument or my dad would put my mom down verbally and emotionally, I was a child. So I would just freeze, right? I didn't know how to operate. And it turns out that my mom was also overweight. So my dad you know, whatever, we're good now, but he would say comments that would be like, why don't you lose weight, right, and put her down. Surprise, I developed an eating disorder. <laughs> but those things, it conditions your brain from a very young age, right? That stuff goes back into the womb. So 
that you take that with you as an adult and that molds who you are as a person. And unless you do some kind of work, and thankfully I was introduced to a therapist around 2017, same time as my hip impingement, and started to discuss all of these things. I didn't realize how much resentment and anger that I had inside of me. And that leaks into your personal life, into your professional life sometimes too. And that's also why I was doing that work. But it also for sure leaks into your movement and your body. And it's no surprise too that my rib cage was so stuck, flared forward, like with a super arch back. And people would tell me when I was younger, like, oh, you have perfect posture because people have this misconstrued idea of posture, right? They think chest up, shoulders back, long spine, but that was messing with me. And I don't know if it was the chicken or the egg, but when you learn to freeze from situations that trigger you and you don't realize it, it's going to influence your breathing, right? Like if you've ever been chased by a bear and you hide, your breathing gets influenced a certain way. I wasn't necessarily being chased by a bear, but I was faced with some kind of a threatening situation. I didn't know how to handle it. So it trained, I conditioned my diaphragm to probably stay very flat, very mellow, not moved through its full excursion. And it's a muscle. And muscles are supposed to lengthen and shorten, right? Contract and relax. So my diaphragm learned to probably either stay contracted or not move through the full thing, didn't move through the contract and relax. That's going to influence the rib cage. So, and I have those, those like drastic before and after pictures that I posted on social media of like the, the posture with the chest up. You've, you've probably seen it. Yeah, you wrote a blog on it and like we can link it here and that your posture changes were unreal. I remember I shared it and I had people comment messaging me about it. And it was just that your posture change was unbelievable and you look taller in your after picture. And I don't know if you necessarily actually gained height, but probably you could have because <laughs> yeah. you're, you could just tell how much better you were able to manage your pressure internally. And you yeah. just looked overall. It, the change is real. Like you just, it's very obvious. So we'll, we'll link that for people mm. that want to read your stuff. Cause you do blog here and there. And yeah, I think you have some really great, Megan mentioned about your reels. We have some really good info for people. I mean, two things there. So I'll talk about the blog that I want to write next, but you said managing pressure. So to tie back to the emotional stuff, like if you get movement wise, exercise wise, you'd learn to manage pressures in your body a lot better, not just through breathing, but positioning yourself in ways you haven't before. Yeah. That immediately influences the emotional side of you. It's, you can't separate it. Like they are so intimately attached. So like in that before and after picture, I didn't post it on social, but I, I used that before and after when I taught trainers at my old gym. So I'd kind of put a presentation introducing them to PRI concepts. And in the before picture where I'm like the compromised posture, really the anterior tilt and stuff, I had all these lists of injuries and I also wrote anxiety and depression. And then on the after picture, I had like improved this, improved this. And I put also improved emotional regulation because I was also like pretty, I had these moments of instability just emotionally, like prior to 2017, right up into it. And who knows if it was hormones and you're just your body changing with the seasons, but all that stuff that was kind of trapped inside and wasn't able to just not just release, but also to circulate and kind of go through the process of understanding it, realizing it, 
coming to peace with it, putting it away, that couldn't happen until it, like the training was also tied into it. And it wasn't intentional. It's just something that I realized. And I personally got interested. So I started reading some books. I read um, the, the Body Keeps the Score. I'm still like finishing that one. But a handful of books that also talk about like the emotional stuff, polyvagal theory was very eye-opening. And you start to realize like, man, there's no separation. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why they don't teach this stuff in school, or maybe they do, right? Maybe med school is nine years, so I don't know if they learn in the first year and then they forget about it the, the next eight years. Like your posture, but also just like, I mean, children that go through high levels of stress, like they don't produce growth hormone the same. It'll suppress your menstrual cycle too if you're too stressed out. It doesn't have to be physical stress. Don't have to be like super skinny. If you get like stressed out enough from like a, a brain, your lizard brain is going to control the rest of your body and like you know, downregulate things that are taking a lot of energy or, you know, don't involve running from a tiger. So, I mean, there's obviously that component as well, but people, yeah, you really can't separate it at all. Yeah. And then it ties into running too. Like people don't come to me with emotional goals, right? They, they want to hit like a sub 5k, whatever, like they have either mile time goals or they have like, I want to be able to run kind of goal. And then we bridge the gap and we do the programming and training and go from there. But it's also, I'm not going to pry into like the personal side of my client, unless like we're developing that kind of relationship and we touch base. It's just not something that I'm going to post on social media or announce it if they happen to like tune me into their personal life and talk about this improvement in their personal life. Mm -hmm. It's just, it just reinforces for me that this is, this is good work that we're doing. And it yeah. reinforces for me that, like you said, it's inseparable. Like you, you can't just, just dissect one thing from the other. Especially when we come to like, we're talking left and right side of the body a lot, especially for running. Like I don't, that's something also people don't realize. Like your left side is not like your right side. And if you want to not just recover from this injury, but make sure that you don't, you lessen the chances of it happening again type of thing. You want to make sure that you're addressing things that aren't moving the way that they should people also don't realize that things aren't moving the way that they should. Like when I got introduced to accessing my left side, and we're just putting that in the this definition of left side. I don't think people understand what that means, but let's just say that it's a hip position or rib cage position that you've never been in before, unless you learn how to breathe a specific way, feel your foot on the ground a specific way and feel a certain set of muscles like hamstrings, obliques and inner thigh and serratus on a certain side. Really easy to get that on the right. It's not so easy to get that on the left. Ironically for me, it was the opposite way. It was really easy for me to access it on the left, hmm. but it was like a fake left AIC type of thing. Like it was just a layer, another layer of compensation. But I was able to tie that back with the emotional stuff because if it's so easy for me to access the left side of my body, even though it should be the opposite way, the right brain, the right side of your brain is the one that commands the left side of your body. And the right brain is the emotional, intuitive, creative side. That's interesting. And that's where in my personal life, I had this void, right? I had my daddy issues. I had issues with my family, some issues with my sister, like all the stuff now that were grown and resolved. But like back then, it was still in limbo. Mm -hmm. And it's for me, I just tied the things together myself. Like there wasn't a book or a manual or a person that like verified it, even though like we would talk in therapy and I would talk with my physical therapist who, um, who was also very into the emotional stuff. He actually ended up deciding to go to uh, some kind of like psychology schooling university, we'll go back to university to kind of tie that in. His name is Kento Kamiyama. I think you may have heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. 
he, I worked with him quite a while. He moved to New Jersey eventually, so I, I can't work with him anymore. But I've heard about him. I feel like more PTs need to do that, or at least like. I would go to him and we would talk for the first 20 minutes and it would be like a mini therapy session. And then he would do like whatever exercise he needed to give me. I remember one day I came in so anxious, just my body was so wound up. And then I left feeling like I was walking on a cloud. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. awesome. Right? Like not just like physically, but I, my mind was just at peace. <laughs> I had no care, no worries in the world. And like, I'm happy to say, right? Some of and you probably experience this too. Some of your clients, some of my clients, they feel better after our training session, not just physically, but that's going to tie into how you feel emotionally too. Yeah. Especially when you get things moving, like you put some oil in a place that has, that hasn't moved in a while. It's, it's very freeing. It's a very Emotion. liberating experience. Yeah. The emotions might come out when you do that too. Sometimes people cry on you, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. think I've had that, but I've heard stories. I've definitely had friends who have yeah. cried from something moving, yeah. <laughs> something moving that hadn't before. Definitely. Wow. Well, if people want to do some sessions with you, we have people that listen to this podcast, I think from everywhere, literally all oh, cool. countries. And I know you're, you do virtual sessions and are you doing in person as well? Yes, but it's mainly virtual. I think yeah. I only have one in person. Yeah, well, I just have a couple that I'm training in person. So that's been the change in the last year. Yeah. I know you asked about like like runners in New York and Queens and needing to breathe. Yeah. Before the past year of craziness, I was working at Equinox, but I was mainly working um, independently as well. So my own private client. Yeah. And I would rent space in this gym called Velocity. And it's an athletic facility. They shut down, sadly. They couldn't reopen. But it was a really great facility. It had about 25 yards of turf. So you could do all kinds of running drills. They had sleds. They had, it was literally for sports. And it was my favorite place to also work out myself. So I would take my running clients there, have them do some drills. And I don't think I introduced like when I actually started to tie in the breeding stuff with running, it was through Derek Hansen. Oh. So <laughs> I missed that part. But anyway, became That's a funny. trainer in 2014. By 2017, I learned the breathing, the left side, right side stuff, understood gait and breathing or started to understand it. And then 2018 or maybe around the same time, I saw Derek Hansen speak and Derek Hansen is a, he puts together his running mechanics professional course, but he's also like a consultant for NHL, MLB, yeah. um, NFL, just a sports professional. He's been in the industry a long time, was a track I think he was a track athlete himself back in the day. And he's, that's just what he's been doing this whole time. And he also has great dad jokes. Like he's very, very fun to watch lecture. But I took his course, I think it was 2018, realizing that like, I've been training runners from the strength side, but don't really know anything about running. And I was like, I should just take this. It's called running mechanic professional. It's like, I should just take this course and understand what he's looking for because like, your eye learns to see strength and movement and hip and whatever we look at, but running is fast paced. So it's a little bit different. And I've never worked with runners, like in terms of that being my market at that point, right? right. Three, four years ago. So I was like, let me take this because I work with runners. Like I might as well be getting better at what I'm doing. What if I'm doing something wrong? And he made it really simple. Like he didn't complicate it. He made it super easy. Like he had us go through the drills and what I liked especially was that he didn't really talk about like, this is the correct way. 
it kind of like weightlifting, right? Like there's the Chinese, there's the Russian, there's the American. Yeah. All of them achieve medals. <laughs> you right? It's just there's so much variance to someone's body and torso length and limb length that as long as they get the bar overhead or as long as they're moving their feet on the ground, they're probably fine. Yeah. When and then when there's like something glaring is when you can kind of intervene and make adjustments. I connected with um, a facility in New York called Prehab and they're, they, they have this extensive like two hour assessment process with the camera and stuff. And, and they were just talking about like, we want to look at a runner, even if they're healthy and identify these imbalances and these are, is your right foot on the ground longer than your left and blah, blah, blah. And see if we can like step in, intervene at an earlier standpoint before something potentially has the, the chance to develop into an ouch or an injury or an itis or something, Yeah, um, which was very cool. But when I took Derek's course, I only took the, the part, because he also talks about rehab and return to play, especially for like professionals that have like Achilles ruptures or hamstring strains or something. For me, I just didn't feel like my wheelhouse. If I need to like, I, I'm very happy to refer to my PT or referred to somebody else to handle that kind of rehab side. Like that's not what I'm trained in. So I focused on the training side of his, what he was teaching in the running mechanics professional course. And it was really just the mock drills. So it's like the skipping variations, the marching yeah. variations, I've the done drill variations, yeah. some bounds, some hops, like they're, they're fun. Yeah. When you're, I was kind of like on the strength junkie side. So I didn't really have an aerobic base. Like I, heart and lungs were just like, Ugh when I had to climb side subway stairs. Um, but they were fun to do. So like, meanwhile, you're working and you're doing something aerobic where you're kind of breathing a little harder than you're used to because you're not doing three sets of five squats. But you're, it's also fun. Like you start to feel like, oh, I feel like I'm in gym class again, in ninth grade or whatever, seventh grade. Like you start to feel like, oh, I'm an athlete again. And I think people enjoy feeling that too, especially like skipping you can't be angry you can't have like a mad face and skip it doesn't work it's just really fun it's stuff that you do on the playground so I started to incorporate that stuff and understood kind of where it had its place in a training session or a training week or a training program right you would there's an element of speed and there's these other aspects and qualities that you want to look for in terms of like stiffness in the lower limb in the foot timing coordination things that don't fall into that three sets of 12 to 15 for whatever athlete you are. There's a lot of other things that you want to be able to do. And just in general, the more things that you can do decently well, the better athlete you're going to be, right? The more well-rounded you are and the less chance that you're, you're going to be, the less likely that you're going to be unprepared if something unexpected comes your way. 100% for sure. Just you're way more resilient that way. So Mm -hmm. kind of on that note, we ask all of our guests what they do every day to move their brain and or move their body. And I can probably guess what you do, but let's ask anyway. <laughs> so to move my body, I, right now I have my PT writing my program for me. It was my, my running sprint coach, who, uh, Ryan Hopkins from Soho Strength Lab. And I actually met him. We connected on social media a few years before the Derek Hansen course. And then I met him in person there. And then I kind of like put myself under his wing on purpose. I was like, I don't know this stuff. Can I like follow you? Can I come at your gym and like learn this stuff? Because I was really interested and I wanted to get better and actually like implement this stuff firsthand so that you can be the guinea pig and experience what it's like for your clients. Otherwise, it's kind of like you don't know what you're teaching if you don't do it yourself. 
And he was super instrumental, not just in helping me understand that stuff, but also applying it from the performance side because he works professionally with athletes, right? I work with the general population, but I also start to understand the performance side of things. By no means am I a performance expert, but I can understand where things fit a lot better now, especially a few years later being integrated in this stuff. Um, and he was writing my program and I told him, like, I don't want to wait list full time, but I want to do snatch and clean and jerk because it's fun. <laughs> and, uh, but I also want to sprint. I want to, I want to run. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do both. I don't want to die doing both at the same time. So can you please write a program for me? And he was like, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> so cause you can't be so, like clean and jerking max weight and sprinting the next day. It's just not going to work. So mm-hmm. he, he wrote my program out. It was four days and it was a very valuable learning experience too, just going through that because from the sprinting, he had me on Monday, Thursday sprints, and then Tuesday, Friday strength, right? So you would prioritize the running, make sure that that's what comes first. The following day is your strength work. And like you're fatigued doing the strength work, even though running is all body weight, the jumps and the bounds and the skips that we did, the running days, it's still very taxing on the central nervous system. Yeah. Especially like if I did stuff like in his gym or did some kind of like sprint work on the curve, like the manual treadmill or like resisted splints where I had um, like a little sandbag behind me. So I was like dragging it I was, as I was sprinting. That thing was 20 pounds, 10, 20 pounds. But the next day you're exhausted <laughs> because it's, you're giving it your all. Yeah, it's, not it's a lot of neural drive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it helped me understand like, damn, like, for the running person, for the running athlete, whether they're distance or some kind of intermediate distance, they don't really need heavy, heavy strength work. Like depending on how you program for them and depending on kind of what their goals are, you have to be very thoughtful and conscious of how you're planning out their days and the order of things as well um, and what you're trying to prioritize for them. And you don't train runner A like you're going to train runner B. They may be very different. Like runner B may already be very good at a bunch of things and you have to focus only on one or two qualities versus runner A may be a totally beginner and needs a lot of like breath work, right? It's, it's there's two different people, two different beasts. So that's where the assessment process comes in, understand what are your goals? Where are you now? What's the plan to get you to where you want to be? And then alongside me just going through Ryan's programming and I loved it. I got so much better. I could feel that I was coming faster too. And I didn't even work with him in person, maybe like a couple of times in person, all of it was remote programming. Um, so I would kind of like watch the videos, follow his instructions, do what he needed me to do. And then it was just, I had a strength background for like over a decade at that point. And I had like pretty sound weightlifting technique, like not optimal by all means, but I knew how to like move the bar pretty well. So it was easy for him to program things like power cleans and jerks and power snatches and stuff like that, because I knew how to do it. So I wasn't going to just like waste my time learning technique. I already had some kind of base technique, but like fast forward (laughs) come into, I think January, we were doing really well in terms of the training, but I also started taking tennis lessons on a Sunday morning and he added a third running day. So all of a sudden they went from two running days to technically four with a one hour tennis lesson, because you're not running a lot, but just, there's a lot of cutting and changing direction. Yeah. They want you to run for the ball. And my, my shin splints, potentially a stress fracture, just started screaming. And I was like, fuck. I kept it at bay for so long. I kept it at bay for like seven months, telling Ryan, like, dude, start me on five yard sprints. <laughs> when I got back to working with him, I was like, five yards. 
let me just do five yards. Okay, 10 yards. Like just really baby steps because I just, I wanted to make sure I could do this stuff and not have to like take so many time, so much, like time off again. And when we unintentionally doubled the volume, it was just a lack of like planning or whatever. It just happens. My shin was just like, okay, you got to stop. So right now it's been since January. So I'm already like two months of not running, but I have Jeremy Pastor writing my programming right now. So he's my PT. Nice. And he knows my body. I've worked with him several times. He understands like the shin splints issue. He took an, like, he had me send assessment videos, check range of motion, like nine different assessments, very similar to like what I asked my clients for too. And I told him like, my goal is to not have any issues if I want to like go on a casual run, take a tennis lesson and sprint and jump in the same week. Like I want to be able to do that because summer's coming and I want to be able to like be active. I mean, I was managing going along from training by myself in the last month or two that I haven't been running, but it's just, it's boring. Like for me personally, I would much rather pay somebody else, hire them. Hey, can you do the thinking for me? Cool. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to follow along. So that's what I did. It's been really cool too. Like it's so much better when someone else is doing the objective thinking for you Mm -hmm. and saying, this is the exercise you need to be doing. You need this variation. You need to be doing this on your left side. Yeah. only throw he has me throwing only from right to left like five different days it's cool because it's like I know how to bias sides too but to have that other aspect of someone thinking a different way it's like oh yeah I never thought of that what a good idea right and then I get better at coaching my clients right <laughs> I, know. I understand where it's appropriate like there's a lot of things that he has me do, do that I wouldn't give to people because I just don't feel like they they understand it conceptually and how to position their bodies and the timing necessary for it. Whereas me, like I have this athletic background and professionally I'm a trainer, but it's helpful to be like, okay, cool. This is in my toolbox. And when it's appropriate, I can prescribe this to somebody who needs it. Coaches need coaches for sure. This This is really cool. You just filled us with so much awesome information. And I think especially runners listening to this are going to get so much out of it. So I hope. Yeah. I'm sure they will. We're going to put all your information, your Instagram. What's your Instagram? So people can just quickly search it. My Instagram and my Facebook and everything is skilled strong. So S K I L L E D strong. And that's also my email address, skilled strong at gmail.com. And my full name is Romina Kostich. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank Thank you so much. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me on. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Move Your Brain, Move Your Body podcast. Join in every week as we release new episodes. Subscribe or leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you have questions or topics to cover, please email moveyourbb at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at moveyourbb.